Lyndon B. Johnson became the 36th president of the United States at a pivotal moment in American history. President John F. Kennedy had just been assassinated, and the country was locked in turmoil and social unrest. Undaunted, LBJ honed in on the Civil Rights Bill and was determined to get it passed into law. He is going to seize this moment and the martyrdom of John F. Kennedy to push through this, this legislation, which he knows will be absolutely transformational. Mark Updegrove, historian and president and CEO of the LBJ Foundation, joins us to explore how LBJ used compromise, as well as the imposing Johnson treatment, to draw bipartisan support. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategerist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. Our guest today is presidential historian Mark Updegrove, who also plays a key role in our Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, which is a partnership between the Bush Institute, Bush 41's library, the Clinton Foundation, and the LBJ Foundation that teaches professionals lessons from presidential history. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And our co-host today is Chris Walsh, Senior Program Manager in Human Freedom at the Bush Institute. Chris, always a pleasure. Hey, Andrew. It's great to be here and look forward to having some uh, burning questions answered about LBJ. (laughs) So even though it's been a good 50 years since LBJ was president, we still have a lot to talk about. Mark, let's start by by setting the scene. Tell us a bit about what was going on as LBJ's presidency began. The 1960s were an incredibly turbulent and transformational time in our in our history. You had so many social movements that were brewing: the civil rights movement, the women's right movement, the 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 the, uh, the youth movement, the anti-war movement. You had Vietnam that was escalating during that time, dividing the nation. It was an incredibly seminal time in American history, and some of the issues that we face today surfaced first in the 1960s. It's still a very relevant chapter uh, in our history. So he came to be president uh, in a little bit of an unusual way that he didn't win an election straight off. He won, I guess, a vice presidential spot, but he didn't win the presidency. And, and so he came in to tough circumstance. Uh, he was an accidental president. He became president upon the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy here in Dallas, Texas. And as he said, uh, or actually as Lady Bird Johnson said, on that harrowing day, uh, people were looking at the living and wishing for the dead. Uh, LBJ had very big shoes to fill uh, with, with JFK's death. That's a leadership style that has to be pretty specific to come in, to step into someone's shoes like that and then carry a nation that's in a, that's in a hard spot. How would you describe his leadership style? How did he get that done? You know, the thing about LBJ is he knew government so well. He had been in Washington since the the mid-1940s. He had worked for a congressman, became a congressman himself at the age of 29 in 1937. Uh, Eleven years later, he would ascend to the Senate and soon climb the ranks um, of that chamber rapidly. He first became minority whip and then um, uh, majority leader, uh, make that minority leader, and then became perhaps the most powerful majority leader we've ever had 
in our history. He accepted the, uh, the, the second spot on the 1960 ticket as vice presidential nominee uh, with, with John F. Kennedy running the ticket. They won in 1960. And as you alluded to, uh, uh, JFK was assassinated just uh, two, just under three years into his presidency. And LBJ becomes the 36th president of the United States uh, with a whole lot on his plate. And so how did he, how did he start tackling things? When he, when he took over, did he ease into the job or did he start starting to push through his great society legislation right away? He went back to, uh, he was here at Love Field. I just came from Love Field and that's where LBJ took the oath of office on, on Air Force One, a stiflingly hot Air Force One, waiting for the body of John F. Kennedy to be loaded on the plane before they returned to, to Washington. He went to his house called the Elms in the district and, um, and stayed up all night and hatched what would essentially become the plans for the Great Society, which is the, the legislative agenda they, that he had extraordinarily ambitious uh, and, and that he would push through through the balance of his presidency, which was in many ways his way of completing the New Deal. Uh, LBJ sees when he's in Washington in the 1930s and 40s, what government do can, can do rather to, to lift up those who haven't been given every advantage in this country. And he's determined to finish what Franklin Roosevelt started. You know, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to puff up my chest a little bit next time I go to Love Field. I didn't realize the historical significance there. So appreciate that insight. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, that, is a, a, that day is so worthy of, of uh, exploration. It's, it's just amazing. But I think if you look at what LBJ does on that day, after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, it portends the leadership he will provide the country. He did everything right, in my view. Uh, and again, he goes back to Washington. He thinks about how he's going to use the, the, the power that has been accidentally placed in his hands. And one of the first things he has resolved to do is push through the Civil Rights Act of 1963 that, that JFK had proposed, but really hadn't put a lot of weight behind. It becomes the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, LBJ's advisors urge him to wait to push that through. They say, look, earn the presidency in your own right in 1964, and then push for this very controversial, very divisive civil rights legislation. And LBJ looks at these guys, and he spent, mind, his, his whole adult life toward the, uh, the, the uh, acquisition and exercise of power, and he responds, uh, what the hell is the presidency for? He is going to seize this moment and the martyrdom of John F. Kennedy to push through this, this legislation, which he knows will be absolutely transformational. So he wasn't interested in waiting for a year and, and letting things settle down. He wanted to push from the start. He knows he has the chance to do it then. And he exploits it. He exploits the, the assassination of Kennedy in order to get it through. Let's talk a little bit about that, that Civil Rights Act. Like in, in the 1960s, there were, there were riots happening. What made the 60s the right time to push forth that legislation? How did he get that done in, in, in a really divisive time? Well, there, was, there were confluences for circumstances. circumstances. One is that the, 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 the civil rights movement was beginning to come to a boil. Uh, and uh, it was about time that we broke the back of, of Jim Crow and its false promise of separate but equal laws, which is is inherently un-American. You know, the most basic creed 
in, in our land is all men are created equal. And as long as, as those Jim Crow books, uh, laws rather were on the books, uh, we were violating that most basic creed. Uh, he also had, he understood how power worked. He understood that this had to be a bipartisan effort. He said, this is not a, a Democratic bill. It's not a Republican bill. This is an American bill. And, but, 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 but for the Northern Republicans and Everett Dirksen, who was the minority leader, the senator from Illinois, was instrumental in this, we wouldn't have civil rights legislation. Not only would you not have the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but you wouldn't have the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is perhaps even more important, perhaps the, perhaps the most important law that LBJ signed and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Is uh, how much was his leadership style a factor in this phase? We hear a lot about his his kind of his, the LBJ approach to uh, convincing people to do what he would like to do, so to speak. Uh, LBJ had an approach called the, it was called the, the 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 Johnson treatment, or simply the treatment, as there was little doubt as to who was applying it. Uh, Johnson would use every inch of his six foot four inch frame to overcome his subjects with flattery or uh, cajolery or whatever it took to get somebody over to his side. He was a master politician. He understood that what you know what what makes you tick is what is different from what makes Chris tick, and and that your hot buttons would be different. And he understood, you know, he knew your wife's name, he knew your your kids' names and their hobbies, he knew how you liked your steak cooked. I mean, this guy understood everything about you, and he would use all that information to figure out again how to to, to pull you over to his point of view. And again, that that could mean, uh, you know pork barrel promises or or quid pro quo trades, or it could mean threatening you or it could be mean flattering you. For, for Everett Dirksen, for instance, uh, uh, who is the, I mentioned the, the minority leader of the Senate, who was absolutely pivotal in getting civil rights legislation passed because he could bring the Republicans into the vote. Uh, it was about flattery. Uh, he knew that Johnson knew that that uh, to a large extent, Dirksen was motivated by ego. And, and at one point he says to them, to, to him, he says, Everett, if you support this bill, a hundred years from now, school kids will, will only know two names, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. <laughs> <laughs> Everett Dirksen hears that. I was like, huh, I think he's onto something there. <laughs> You know, in a world where um, it just seems that that compromise has become a bad word, a dirty word, what would what would LBJ say to the folks in our in our legislature today, our leadership today about, you know, getting the job done? And it's 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 okay that you don't agree on everything, but you can you can make progress. You know, there was a there was a popular phrase at the time. Half a loaf is better than none. And that's a good principle in politics. LBJ's favorite biblical proverb was from the book of Isaiah, come let us reason together. And I think if he were alive today, he would lament the lack of reason and the lack of togetherness. Uh, let's face it, compromise is the oil of democracy. And if you look at the great legislation that comes out of the Johnson administration in the 1960s, and it's vast, it is all because of bipartisan support. Now, just let me just enumerate some of the things that come out of of the uh, the Great Society. I mentioned civil rights, the, the civil rights bills, all of, of which are totally uh, uh, seminal, including voting rights, which I think was the uh, LBJ's proudest 
legislative accomplishment. But you also have the Immigration Act of 1965, the most sweeping immigration uh, reform we've ever seen. You have the Clean Air Act. You have highway beautification. You have the creation of the, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, public broadcasting, which creates PBS and NPR, uh, the, the creation of the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts, the creation of the Kennedy Center. Uh, you have uh, Medicare and Medicaid and Head Start in this vast array of laws. And again, they, those did not go on the books because the Democrats supported them. They got on the books because both uh, some Democrats and, and some uh, Republicans, which constituted a majority, got them through, through Congress and they were signed into law by Lyndon Johnson. Compromise is an absolutely essential ingredient in a democracy. So he was so successful. He got so much done. Why did he walk away after, after one, uh, one election? He, as he wins in a landslide, 64% of the popular vote um, in 1964, which was the largest majority on record at that point. Nixon would overtake him in 1972 for that record. Uh, but he decides in 1968, when the, the country is being torn asunder by Vietnam, that um, he needs to do something in order to to uh, try to establish peace with North Vietnam. He wanted peace with honor. I think he was, you can hear in, in the tape telephone conversations of LBJ doing the business of his presidency, which, which are really the crown jewels of the LBJ Presidential Library Archive, his anxiety over the war in Vietnam. He did not want to be there, but he didn't see a way out either. And so uh, his, his reason for opting not to run again is partly so he can leverage that as a, a goodwill gesture for Ho Chi Minh to come to the, to the peace table. And, and feed Ho, Chi Minh's, uh, Ho Chi Minh takes the bait and, and decides that he will participate in peace talks. Unfortunately, one of the great tragedies of the, the Johnson presidency, it did not come to fruition. The bigger reason, though, is that LBJ had a weak heart and, and uh, this, this uh, uh, family history of the males in his family dying of heart ailments. His father and grandfather both died in their early 60s. LBJ had a nearly fatal heart attack uh, at the age of 47 in 1955. And he decides he doesn't want to put the country through what possibly could be a health crisis in him having another heart attack. He had seen what Franklin Roosevelt's death had done to the country in 1945. He knew about uh, Woodrow Wilson's stroke uh, in the latter part of Wilson's tenure as president. He didn't want to do that to the country. And so he opted not to run it. Interestingly enough, had he run again and won the presidency, all things being equal, LBJ would have died two year, two days rather after oh, leaving wow. the presidency. He died on January 22nd, 1973. Well, you also mentioned in the, in the Great Society legislation, the elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is near and dear to the heart of all of us here at the Bush Institute, as since the uh, the legislation from President Bush's administration, the No Child Left Behind uh, move was built really on top of the education education and elementary and secondary education act. Tell us about a little bit about that legislation. What was what were the motivators behind LBJ being so um, bullish on that? You know, ostensibly, ostensibly, it's about education. It certainly is. It's about equaling the playing field. 
um, in America on education and a profusion of federal aid to education for the first time. But it's also about civil rights. Remember, this is a time when there are separate but equal facilities throughout the United States and separate, separate, ostensibly separate but equal schools. But certainly they were, they were separate but not equal. And so uh, uh, children of color were not getting the same quality education that, that their, counter, their white counterparts were getting. And so the elementary and secondary education was meant in, in, to, to some degree to fix that, to put federal aid into these lower income schools. And it's a transformational act. I keep on using that word, but I think that defines the era and this presidency as much as any word I can think of. Uh, you can see high school graduation rates increased by about 30% as a direct consequence of ESEA just shortly after it goes into to law. We also have the Higher Education Act. Uh, today, 60% of all uh, scholarships and all uh, uh, aid uh, for uh, college students comes directly out of the Higher Education Act. So these are these are game changers uh, in the area of education. Actually, interestingly enough, Johnson wanted to be known as the education president because he believed if everyone had a, a fair shot at a good education, there would be no need for civil rights because everyone would have an equal chance to, to, to achieve something in this country. I think he was ultimately, when he left office, known most for, uh, for Vietnam. But I think uh, now that we get a clearer perspective on his presidency with the distance of time and those passions around Vietnam have receded, I think ultimately he'll be known as the civil rights president. President Bush often often says that he's not going to worry too much about what people say because historians will figure it all out later on down the road. And I think we've seen that a little bit with his father. We're seeing it a lot with LBJ of of, of where the people are realizing that yeah this, he did a lot of great things and and Vietnam was was a tough was a a tough mark, but there was it, it wasn't all on his shoulders either. But that's that's the presidency is that you things get put on your shoulders that you don't often that you often hope would not be. Yeah. And I think President Bush is a, is a great example. There, was, there were great passions around the Bush presidency as well because of the war in Iraq. He left acutely unpopular. Uh, it's going to take a, a long time for us to sort out what his legacy is going to be. And, and President Bush was wise enough to know that he never let that get in the way of doing what he thought was right for the country. And I think you could say the same thing about LBJ. For President Bush's father, George H.W. Bush, uh, you know, he left uh, w with a, a cleaner break in his presidency. Most of the issues uh, that he were, was, was involved with were resolved. We had seen a peaceful uh, end to the Cold War. We had seen an end to the, the Gulf War. Uh, and, and so his, his legacy is a little less complicated than those of Lyndon Johnson and George W. Bush. So you're, you're a historian and they always say, well, historians are going to figure this out. Historians will look at things differently. So as a historian, uh, which president do you most admire and why? You know, that's an easy one. Uh, uh, I've had the great good fortune of interviewing five presidents during, uh, wow. during my lifetime. And I've, and counting, I've, I've asked and counting, <laughs> and counting, right. Uh, and, uh, and I've asked them that question and to a, to a president, they will say, and I'm looking at a, a picture of him behind me, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is the president's president. George H.W. Bush said he's everybody's favorite, and it's true. And I think the reason that he is, is everybody's favorite is because he withstands the adversity of his presidency with such grace. If you go to the Lincoln Memorial, you'll see uh, uh, Lincoln's 
arms outstretched on the arms of his chair, and his hands are different. One hand is balled up in a fist, and the other one is outstretched. And that's done symbolically, because as, as much as any leader I can think of, uh, Lincoln balances strength, which is that bald fist, and compassion, which is that outstretched um, fist. Uh, he, he waged the war viciously uh, in order to keep the Union together. And then after the war is over, uh, he, he proclaims that it's a time for malice toward none and charity for all, the words that he used in his second inaugural address. And that, that grace, uh, that strength, that, that compassion, that empathy mark his presidency. And I think presidents look to him because they're never going to, uh, to, to, to have any crisis that's darker than the Civil War. You know, by the way, I just want to say compromise is the oil of democracy. I want that on a bumper sticker or a T-shirt. <laughs> so let's let's talk about that after some marketing rights. But I want to I want to go back to something you said, LBJ as the education president, specifically the, that idea that if he, you know, if we focused on education, we wouldn't we wouldn't really need a civil rights movement. And I'm thinking about today's world, and I'm thinking about uh, a project that the Bush Institute is doing with both the Penn Biden Center and Freedom House called the Democracy Project, surveying different people's attitudes on on the state of democracy in our country and around the world. And and one thing that has come out of that is the need for civic education in our society to really reengage young people, uh, to teach them the benefits of of our democracy. And I'd be curious, kind of thinking about the the inspiration of LBJ. What what would he tell us as the next steps in terms of engaging our citizenry in our democracy? You know, the thing is that I, I mentioned the reason that he was able to transition so gracefully into the presidency. He knew instinctively what to do is because he knew government. And what we are not teaching in our schools is civics. Our school children don't know how government works. And so they don't know how to get involved. They don't know what their stake is in government. And I think we need to, to pursue civics education. I have to tell you, not just because I'm sitting here, but because the, the, the George W. Bush Institute is doing some amazing things that uh, reflect in so many ways the legacy of, of George W. Bush. And one of the, you know, interestingly enough, George W. Bush entered the presidency like LBJ did, wanting to be the education president. And as, as you, you suggested, he, he, uh, he signs the uh, uh, ESEA back into law with no child left behind. He has a great start. And indeed, he's making a, a speech about no child left behind when 9-11 happens. And he realizes that his, his presidency is no longer his own. He has become, whether he likes it or not, a war president, just as LBJ did. Uh, and, and it's just, it gives, it, 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 um, it's, it's a good example of knowing that you can have an agenda as a leader, but that agenda can always be co-opted by preempted by, by the crises, the, the situations that come across your desk as a leader. And you have to balance those things. It's your challenge to balance those things. If, from your perspective as a historian, what should we as a nation be talking about that we're not? There are so many things that I think that uh, our nation should be concerned with. Um, we hear about global warming. We, uh, the, the White House has, has denied that it exists or, or that if it exists, it's not man-made. And I think that's a major problem. That's a, that is literally an existential crisis that we will have to face up to. But I think the thing that we're not talking about right now is our massive federal deficit, which is $24 trillion 
dollars. As an example, Paul Ryan uh, made his political career, became the Speaker of the House of Representatives um, by talking very eloquently in 2010, very urgently about our our climbing federal deficit. It was becoming bigger and bigger. And it's as big now as it has ever been. It was $666 billion last year. It will be $779 billion this year. That's a 17% year-over-year increase. And we are mortgaging our future. And that bill is going to have to be picked up by the young people in this country. That is a wrong that we need to make right. Tax cuts are fine. No, no one wants to pay taxes, but it's extraordinarily important that we are fiscally prudent as a nation, and we are not observing that right now. Well, Mark, thank you again for joining us. Uh, Mark is the author of, you can get several, several of his books online or at any bookstore, The Last Republicans Inside the Extraordinary Relationship Between George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, Indomitable Will, LBJ and the Presidency, Baptism by Fire, Eight Presidents Who Took Office During Times of Crisis, and Second Acts, Presidential Lives and Legacies After the White House. Mark, we also need to make sure we visit the LBJ library. I, I love just, it's a, it's a time machine to the, awesome. to the 60s, which um, if anyone out there hasn't visited, they really should. We'd be honored to have you. Thanks so much for having me on the program. Thank you, Mark. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.